My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me today is Delandra Mesa. Hello, Delandra. Hi, Pilar. Hello. I'm glad that you invited me on. I always enjoy talking to you. I am glad that you're here as well. Delandra is a fabulous writer. And I happen to know that personally, because I got to look at some of her work. Um, She is a client of mine, in addition to being a wonderful, wonderful writer on TV and with film. So let me tell you about Delandra. She started her film and TV writing career working for the infamous low budget production company, The Asylum, writing over a dozen made for TV movies that aired on networks like Sci-Fi, Lifetime, LMN, Axis, Animal Planet, and Hallmark. She became a staff writer on Sci-Fi's hit zombie series, Z Nation, and stayed there for three seasons. She then worked on the Netflix spinoff, Black Summer, before moving on to the dance drama series, Step Up, Step Up, first for YouTube Premium, and now at their new home at Stars. Uh, so you've, you've been doing quite a lot. Oh, and then I, I've got to add, I've got to add the, the original pilot that Delandra just finished, which is is what I got to take a peek at. And it is based on a website, Instagram site, right? Called the Red Lipstick Challenge, right? Yeah, it's on Instagram. It was a challenge that I started doing myself just to celebrate my birthday month, I think seven years ago now. And I just in my office was like, I decided to wear red lipstick for a month for my birthday month and ask some girlfriends do you want to join me? And so we started like a Facebook group. I think we're still there on Facebook. um, And that's still popular too. And within about, by the end of that year, I think there was 100 members. And then by the end of the next year, there were about 200. And now we have about 300 women that follow the group. Um, Every February, we just, that's the only rule. You wear red lipstick every day, you post a selfie and you say something, you compliment somebody else on their selfie once a day. And that's pretty much it. And um, then we kind of, this last year, we moved over to Instagram and, um, you know, we're trying to grow it a little bit, bit by bit. And a friend of mine, Molly Salmon, um, helps run it with me because it's actually a lot of work and I don't, you know, we don't get any money from it or anything at this point, but I was so inspired by what happened to women based on this one simple act of something that seems sort of silly and surface. Um, There were women who they had breakdowns about it because they, it triggered um, their feelings about sexuality and assault and uh, expressing sexuality themselves. We had women who, um, you know, they wore it during their cancer treatments. They wore it during their miscarriages. They wore it during their childbirths. 
Um, we had women who, you know, one of the stories that's in the pilot is like one of the women, her mother was had been put in a nursing home and they realized that they hadn't packed any of her creams, her perfumes, her makeup, anything, and that her mother was depressed because she didn't have the things around her that made her feel like a human uh, uh, for her, you know, what, what helped make her feel like herself. And so I remember that year we all sent care packages, you know, of like beautiful perfumes and creams and talcum powders and lipsticks, obviously, um, to her to kind of, I don't know, pass it forward, like pay it forward, you know, and every year I noticed, um, sort of the same patterns would happen where women were really scared to wear this red lipstick and to sort of show, be seen, you know, because red lipstick, psychologically, it makes people look at you longer. It does. That's scientifically proven. Like people will look at you that 0.5 seconds longer if you're wearing red than they would have otherwise. And women were surprised to find themselves uncomfortable with that 0.5 seconds of extra attention and then started to ask themselves, well, why? Why do I feel uncomfortable with people looking at me or listening at me or listening at me, listening to me more? Um, and so it would sort of every month, you know, every year during that month, I would see these journeys that were very like universal happening for women. So that's what really inspired the pilot. I, I, and, and reading it, you know, we were talking right before we went on about the idea that small things lead to great change, right? And when, and as a writer, when you can master those little small things that can, that can completely change a scene. It can uh, change the direction of a story. So the fact that you've got this ensemble of women in your original pilot that is changed by this one experience of red lipstick and I won't give it away a lot of it. It's, it's just a really interesting story. It's very clear. And you want to just keep following these characters as a result. It's a really cool way to trigger stories of of lives that are that that are working together i really loved it thank you i was also really inspired i don't know if you saw greta gerwig's the women her adaptation of that this no past winter no uh, sorry not the women little women oh, little women <laughs> yeah because little. i was like oh the women wow i'd love to see her do the women but no yeah little little women i loved that adaptation of it it was so good yeah, she'd be great doing the women she too. Would. That would, she would. I'd love to see another remake. I know they did one either late '90s, early 2000s, but I'd love to see a current adaptation of the women. That Me would be too. I was actually kind of also inspired. My original concept of this pilot is that there you wouldn't see the male characters at all; that it would only be the female characters. And then, as I sort of went more into the theme of small of small moments and small. Um, choices actually becoming life or death I felt like well you need to see you know the fallout from those things so we really do need to see these conversations but um little women (laughs) totally (laughs) different story um that I felt like Greta Gerwig's whole theme in that movie was that you know them knitting a scarf for Marnie or whatever is just as important as anything else that was happening around them. You know, their father was off to war and that was life or death, but they had to hold things down at home. And um, women were sort of running their households and running their towns that they had been left behind in. And that so those what seems like small domestic things from the outside 
are keeping the country running, you know, while the men are off fighting. Um, and so many movies are about those larger sweeping, very dramatic. Um, and they're fat. And there's nothing against that. Those are great. I love that. But I'm also interested in women's lives and what is it like after you have a baby and what is it like when you're taking care of an older relative and what is that like? And that those things also are the heart's blood of our daily lives and of our countries. And, you know, they're what support these huge, sweeping, dramatic, epic stories. I think they're just as important. So I wanted to have a script that really talked about that, but in a fun, entertaining way. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. And it is fun and entertaining. Um, so if you're if you're interested in it and you have to be uh, a huge producer, get in touch. Otherwise, you're just going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait till somebody buys it. It gets on TV. All right. And then you'll go, oh, I heard it on the podcast. <laughs> now, uh, I was reading something in your bio that said, let's see, you went to Washington State, right? No, wait. Yeah, sorry. Well, you went to Central was- Washington University. Yes. Yes. And then you moved to L.A. the Monday after graduation to pursue writing. Yes. I graduated on Friday. Oh, no, no. Graduated on Saturday. I got married on Sunday. Oh, my God. And then I moved Monday. (laughs) And that was it. We moved. We packed everything into a car (sighs) and just broke down like idiots, you know. (laughs) But I love I love like what did your calendar look like? Um, Graduate get married, move for writing career. Like, that's crazy. It literally looked like that. I think I wrote it down on the calendar, like graduate, marry, move. I tend tend to make all of my decisions that way where it's just sort of like, all right, let's just do it. You know, it's like one, two, three, let's go. Um, And then I'll kind of wait around and see what doors open, see how things are going and then it's time to reassess and see whatever the next big decision is, you know, to sort of push forward with, but yeah, everything tends to happen sort of like nothing's happening. And then all at once, everything's happening. So what happened when you moved to LA? We were poor. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do? What did you do for work that got Uh, you up to eventually up to your first job? Well, first I worked food service. You know, I had to beg for a job because I my last job had been in the theater department as a costume sewer for, um, you know, Central, uh, helping sew labels into costumes and, um, and doing that sort of thing, which I loved. I thought about going into that more. And then ironically, I didn't go into it because um, I noticed that my professor had a hump on her back and being vain. I was like, well, I don't want to have a hump, so I can't, I don't want to be a professional sewer. And now I have a hump anyways from hunching over my laptop and writing. So <laughs> there was no way to escape it. I was, I was destined to be hunchback. But <laughs> so um, so it was, first I did food service. I worked it then. It was the Corner Bakery Cafe at the Grove. Oh, yeah. I know it well. Yes. And, yeah. And which is a terrible job because you don't get tips. They don't allow you to accept tips. So, you know, it was just- when you were working there, you, I was probably walking my baby in there, you know, Amazing. I'm trying we to, probably, you probably came in. Yeah, I'm sure. Cause I used to spend a lot of time when the Grove opened up, I was like, look at what opened up for me and my baby. Oh, thank you so much. And I lived across the street and I would, I would just spend all this time there, you know, walking around and uh, corner bakery was my salvation. I love that place. So That's cool. Amazing. Yeah. I mean- 
it's I remember, you know, it was still thrilling to walk into the Grove. It's so well designed and the music, it's like you're coming into Disneyland. Yes. And I was like, even though I worked there every single day, I still got a little thrill when I walked into that like main square, yeah. which tells you it's very well designed because it's essentially a fancy mall, you know, <laughs> so to walk into the mall every day and still get a little bit like, wow, it's beautiful here um, is interesting. But uh yeah, we had customers there who were, you know, because we were right behind the CBS station. So mm-hmm. we would get soap opera actors. We would get prices, right? Um, people who worked there, people who worked within that CBS department would come. So I got to know industry types right away in terms of like how they are. Like I remember one guy would come in and he always wanted seven ice cubes and he didn't want six. Oh, and he didn't eat. are you kidding me? Oh, my yes. God. <laughs> And some of the actresses would come in and they'd have staples like on along their hairline because they'd had facelifts. Oh, you know? And wow. then they, they weren't wearing their wigs because they were just on break. So you would see staples. So it was like, wow. And then after that, I had a friend who worked for, she worked for a literary agency in Beverly Hills. But that same literary, uh, it was on the same floor as Hopland Cologne, which was at the time a very high-end talent management agency um, Judy Hopland and Gavin Pallone, it was all of their talent that they managed. She knew that they were looking for a receptionist. And so she put in a good word for me. I went in and I remember I like went to Forever 21 and bought an all black. I was like, I bought a pencil skirt and some cheap polyester thing, but it was mm-hmm. all in black. I just like, you know, yeah, I and then licked my hair back. You know, <laughs> I have dark hair. I just slicked it back. And I remember like, because I was just like, I have to fake it. You know, I have to fake that I look, that I'm making more money and look more sophisticated than I am. And it was a good impulse because I was hired. Mm-hmm. So I was hired with all these caveats about um, <laughs> the kind of behavior that I could display. So I was expected to like, I had to do the grocery run because they had a kitchen. So everything needed to be stocked. I had to make the coffee in the morning. I had to arrange the flowers in the office. And I was also the script reader there. So I had like a stack of scripts that I was to get through and create coverage for. Luckily, the other reason I got the job is because I was taking UCLA extension classes about script reading, like how to create coverage. So my theory has always been when you're not sure, when you feel stagnant in your job, you have to do something, whether it's volunteer, take a class, you have to do something to like push the stagnation out of the way, you know, like get things moving again. So luckily, it just lined up. Um, was like, oh, was Barney teaching that class still? No, it was Harrison Reiner. Okay. All right. Just wondering. Who, it, who I'm still friends with. And he's lovely. Oh, and he works at C- at the time he worked at CBS doing in their story department. I used to so, teach that class too over at UCLA. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a great class, I think, if, yeah. for, if you're coming in and you're starting, um, you know, coming in and, and doing script reading, I always think is not only a good way to sort of get in the mix a little bit, um, maybe earn some money, hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. if you're, you know, and then also you're learning. Right. I mean, I, I must've read, I think I worked there for two or three years and I read hundreds of scripts, some of which were produced and some of which weren't. Um, and that also was its own education in, okay, this is the kind of script that gets produced because I would see, I would read beautiful, beautiful scripts for people, you know, um, for directors that they, that they had there. 
um, you know, she represented people like Alan Rickman and, um, oh, geez, his name's going. He directed the first Thor movie. He's the Shakespearean director and actor from England. Oh, oh. Yes, I know who you're talking about. And so does everybody who's listening. So they're just shouting at us. So I know, I know. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. It'll pop into our heads, but he's very, very kind. Oh, Um, uh, there were certain people I was not allowed to look at in the eye. That if they spoke to me, I had to avert my gaze. Like that's the level, you know what I mean? Oh my God. That's like, like royalty. It's like, you know, that's, it wouldn't happen anymore. I don't think, right. You know, I don't think you would be told when you come into a job, here are the people who you're going to see every day who you're not allowed to look in the eye or address directly or say their names to them. Don't put up Christmas decorations because they don't like it. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't think you would really be given those rules anymore. I think think you're right. I think with our our examination of what's toxic in the workplace, that those kind of power dynamics are only contribute to it. So that's the, yes, I think it wouldn't be, but those, I mean, those stories you hear are real and you're telling me one right now. It was, that was, those were the conditions. It was like, you can either um, accept those or you don't get the job. And so, and when you're, you know, 22 years old Mm -hmm. and you're hungry, you know, you're like, great, fine. Sounds good. So I worked there. I loved the reception gig because like I said, I got to like, just answer the phone, you know, do the groceries or whatever. Don't look at certain people, you know, and then, um, you know, Jennifer Garner would come in to audition. Um, you know, these like actors and actresses would come in. Oh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, you know, was one of um, the people that was there all the time. So it was fascinating. And I got to see the inner workings of like very high-end aspects of um, Hollywood. But over time, you know, as I started to move up the ladder, I started to get, um, then I became like second assistant to Judy Hopland, which was like a very important and stressful job because, you know, these are people who everything needs to run like clockwork and they don't have a lot of time to answer questions. Um, So you kind of are just scrambling all the time. And one of my jobs I remember was to like buy gifts for like Kevin Klein, buy Kevin Klein a birthday gift. Well, I don't, you know, I lived in like a ratty apartment. You know? I had no idea what somebody as wealthy as Kevin Klein would even possibly want for their birthday, which probably nothing. I assume he wanted nothing. But any case, get him a red lipstick. Let's just see what happens. Right. Yeah, it was all go. like, try to find a Charles Dickens first edition. It was just stuff like that. Oh, you know? go to sprinkles and run something to this actor's house you know it was it was a lot of that or like someone had wine at this meeting 10 years ago try to find the same wine it was was these impossible tasks and so I started to develop a twitch and like an eye twitch oh my god and I was I just eventually was like I can't my body can't handle the stress of this particular segment of the industry so I'm gonna move on.com And um, so I moved on. I kind of quit. I temped around for a while. And then um, I started volunteering. Oh, I started answering phones at guests for the Marciano brothers and um, did that for a while while I was writing plays. So I was writing plays and having live theater um, done, mostly at Theater of Note, which is in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had, you know, my ex was an actor there. My my now ex, my then husband was an actor there. So I was able to get stuff produced, which was great. 
And then in the meantime, I thought maybe I'd go into education because most of my family is in education. They're all teachers. So I um, started teaching night school. So I started teaching ESL for adults, beginning reading for teenagers, you know, and then I would sometimes pick up gigs doing tutoring, teaching at private schools for a year or so. Um, So I did that uh, while I was also writing plays. And then what happened was the funding for the adult school ran out. And um, I did that for like seven years. And then they weren't going to have adult schools anymore through LAUSD. So that was really sad because I had enjoyed my students so much. Mm -hmm. I had learned so much from them. And I still use what I, the stories there and the people that I met there. I use those things all the time as a writer. Um, And it taught me so much too about LA culture because it was right there in the middle of, uh, it, it was at LA High at night. It would become an adult school. So right there in the middle of L.A. And it's just like I saw everything I had. I was threatened. I had to break up gang fights. I had students threaten to stab me. I would be like, I wish you would, because then I might get disability. Like, you know, Go ahead. Do. Stab me. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Great. Love that plan. Let's go. Don't hit any major. Organs. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, at which point they would laugh, you know, um, busted a lot of kids for smoking pot, you know, um, so did all that stuff and kind of learned a lot about LA culture and, um, met a lot of incredible people. And then the funding fell out and I was pregnant, uh, suddenly at the age of 30 and was like, Oh geez. So what are we going to do? And I remember I was so stressed out and I was still tutoring and I was driving over the hill to to a very wealthy uh, dentist's house to tutor his children who were lovely and um, I got a call from it was a guy an actor who had been in my one of my plays uh, called uh, Skeleton Stories which was about Day of the Dead and he what played the devil or like the the god of the underworld you know he called me and he had been working as a janitor at the asylum which is the low budget production company. Mm -hmm. And they had asked him if he wanted to write a zombie movie for them for sci-fi. But they said he needed a partner and he remembered me from the play. So he reached out and said, will you help me write this zombie movie? And I just said, yes, even though I had no idea how to write a zombie movie, how to write a script for TV, that was completely different than anything I'd read. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I figured I could figure it out. You know, <laughs> so, so I said yes to that. And that led to that did very well in the ratings for us. It was called Rise of the Zombies. And it was on sci-fi, LeVar Burton, uh, Danny Trejo, um, you know, lots of great actors were in it. It's um, it's a fair movie you know, for, a TV, for a low budget TV movie. I think it turned out pretty great. Well, Asylum, you know, pay, pays their writers a buck especially at that point was like literally just paying them like a thousand bucks pretty much was like here. Uh, yeah. Because they, they didn't, we weren't union. Yeah. So we didn't know, we had no idea how much someone would be paid for a TV movie. Mm-hmm. So I might've accepted two grand mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Because I was like, well, I mean, it's two grand more than I have. Exactly. Bro, As so. a produced credit, suddenly you're, sure. you're writing a, a movie. That's yes. awesome. 
And so it was set on, oh, it was set in San Francisco, even though none of it was filmed in San Francisco. It was just badly, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge sort of badly CGI'd into the background. But we set it there. And then uh, the scene that I wrote while I was pregnant was um, that a woman who's pregnant gives birth. The baby is normal until it comes out. And then the baby becomes a zombie and our main character, who's a woman, stomps the baby <laughs> to death on the Golden Gate Bridge. It's not funny, but it is. <laughs> Which is pretty intense. But it made clip of the week on the soup. So I was happy. <laughs> and you so got be- to exercise all your fears and your anger, right? Exactly. Yeah. Once the baby, once my baby was born, I don't know if I could have written that scene, you know, but because it was before he was born, I was like, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, Afterwards, I think I would have been more hesitant. But (laughs) so because it sort of did well and got a little bit of steam behind it, then they kept asking us to come back. And then over time, Keith um, went on to become the star of Z Nation uh, for the same company. So that was our zombie sci-fi show. And then I went on to write on Z Nation as well. And that really launched my the TV part or the uh, TV series part of my career. And it still took a few years. You know, those stories of people being um, uh, staff writing mm-hmm. for multiple seasons. That was me, mostly because I had no management. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that there were levels. I didn't understand anything about the TV writing process. And the reason I had gotten the job was because I'd met the showrunner during um, Carl. You know, I had met the showrunner, who's, lo- again, a lovely person at a Christmas party. And we became like Facebook friends. And I'm sure at the party, I was like, oh, I'd love to write on the show. And I'm sure he was like, yeah, I'm sure you would, you know. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then <laughs> everyone asked him that, I'm sure. And then he thought my Facebook posts about my son were funny. Huh. And so he asked me to join the staff. And that's how I got on the show. That's me. And that's D Nation is what we're talking about. D Nation. Um, the way Carl works, which is which I agree with, is he, you know, he just he goes with his gut feeling and he he wants to have fun. Like he wants to enjoy himself at work, which, you know, you can't blame him for that. And the fact is, it was a very low budget production. I mean, this is a series that for five seasons did almost no like lighting, you know, everything was sort of filmed outdoors because everything and um, because everything's very low budget. And so again, I was ignorant and had no idea that I was supposed to move up through anything. I didn't have a manager. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anyone to tell me those things. I had not been to film school. I, I didn't know. So I just felt lucky to be there And, you know, sometimes came extra days. I think I would be contracted for a certain number of weeks and I would stay longer because I wanted Carl to feel like I was an integral part of the team. And he did. I think he did. You know, obviously, yes. Carl Schaefer's brilliant. And um, and we really enjoy each other just as people. And I always wrote my own scripts. You know, there was never sort of like, oh, well, you get, you know, I always pitched and wrote my own scripts. And he would give me great feedback and say, you know, you're you're such a strong writer and you're really important here to us. And I felt that way. I felt, you know, it felt very family. But like I said, because I didn't have anyone who was sort of representing me, I had no idea like that 
I had no idea that anything was wrong with me staying there for three seasons. So it became clear that the show was going to wrap up its run. And at that point, uh, right around then, I got a call randomly from a manager, J.D. Sobal, who had heard about me from um, somebody else. I'm sorry, uh, somebody else on Z Nation. He had gotten my name from. And he just called me up and asked, hey, do you want me? I'm a manager. Do you want me to submit you for things? And I was like, yes. I mean, you know. I and so he started submitting me for things and then he submitted me for step up uh, the series, which I didn't think I had any shot for because all of my background was in genre. And I had I was like, I guess, you know, I had a sample that I had written that was about it was a genre sample, but it was about teenagers. So I thought, well, send that to step up and see whether, whether they like it or not. And I thought I'd never hear about it again. Instead, I got called in for a meeting. It was sort of like they need you to watch all of it overnight. They need you to watch the first season overnight before the meeting. So I did, you know, like stayed up all night and crammed and then meditated, took a couple deep breaths. And I met with Holly Sorensen, another brilliant showrunner. And um, and it just happened. I guess she liked me, you know. So that was it. And then once I got into the step up room, then I was like, Oh, <laughs> suddenly I understood so many things about, um, you know, like, oh, people don't generally hang out at, at that level for that many years. And I still, here's the other thing. They still hired me as a staff writer, but uh, yeah. with, with the, with um, the sort of, we negotiated in my contract that if I stayed for the next season, I would be bumped up twice. So it'd be bumped up to executive story editor. So this past season, then finally I sort of got my bump, but it took a long time and it took a long time for me to understand um, what had sort of been going on, you know? And I, and I have to say, even though sometimes I get frustrated cause I feel like I'm behind my peers in some ways. Um, I can't say anything bad because I'm just super grateful. I think a lot of people don't get any opportunity to get in. So that's, I have mixed feelings sometimes about it, but mostly I, I feel gratitude and lucky to work with the people I, I did work with. And clearly like now you're on a roll, you know, now it's going to be, you know, sort of one bump up after another, after another, because I, I just want to say like Delandra has a knack, has a, has a structural sixth sense um unlike practically anybody i've ever worked with like you immediately know when to move story you know i can talk to you about where the characters might go and you just like get it and run with it um your your approach to story is sort of years beyond what it sounds like is coming through on this podcast so i just want everybody to know this is this is a woman who writes like a seasoned writer, because actually you are, you know, you've put in many, many seasons. <laughs> um, it is. Yeah. Um, tell, let's talk about step up. So those years when you were doing adult teaching at LA high and dealing with the actual high schoolers that were probably hanging around till you were teaching, right. Did, did that become useful when you're writing for step up, which is dealing with young people 
Yes, extremely so. So Step Up, they're actually meant to be more like college age, like in their 20s. Mm-hmm. But um, it's very much, you know, the the my first, what is it called, um, hour, you know, my first class of the day was with ninth graders. Um, they would stay after school to have a beginning reading class, which, as you can imagine, they loved. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing says, here's where I want to be, like 14-year-olds who are reading at a fourth grade level, you know, um, oh, for various reasons, being forced to stay for credit, you oh, know. yeah. So Jeez. it taught me a lot about um, not only dealing with people, but also uh, the stories of what, what had led students to sort of be in that classroom were so varied. And it really does teach you that... Um, sort of there but for the grace of God go any of us because a lot of these students it was it was stories like whole families that are addicted to meth you know and they're still they're the one that's still in school and they're trying but they have a lot of things pulling their attention away or um, girls who have gotten pregnant very early and now they're coming back to try to make up for that people with learning disabilities people I had one kid tell me he was jumped by both gangs every day because they wanted him to choose. And it was basically like the beatings will remain until you choose a side. Um, There were people there who were there because they were dealing with liver failure at a young age. Um, You know, it's just these stories. And then the class after that was mostly immigrants coming in because it was mostly ES, you know, English as a foreign language Mm -hmm. classes. And so, and they had incredible stories. They came from all over the world. They came from Egypt, from Jamaica, from Mexico, from El Salvador, from Korea. Um, You know, they had incredible stories as well. It's just the diversity of stories, the diversity of experience. And I think it's very easy for us to get into our bubbles Mm -hmm. and become judgmental about where someone is. But once you meet people and talk to them, you understand that we're all the same. And it's just really circumstance. And luck, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to have middle class parents who were both educators and were very focused on me moving forward. And not everybody comes from families that um, can do that for them. It's not even won't or they, they don't want to. They can't. Right. You know, sure. sure. And, so- and how brilliant so many of these students were. Uh, but their brilliance was generally not visual you know this sort of intelligences the the brilliance was um body brilliance it was um emotional brilliance it was hands-on brilliance these are like amazing artists amazing dancers amazing athletes amazing um uh engineers you know amazing inventors uh not everybody's good at taking a test so that's sort of what I was able to bring in a lot of ways to that room. That's huge um, because the characters on Step Up are a lot of those kinds of people. Like you said, this sort of body brilliance, like this, these, these performers, but they, their advancement in life is often stopped up economically, like by their circumstances, right? Yeah. So here you are having, having you know, real hands-on experience, um, with care with people like that, and then you're writing for characters like that. So that must have been extremely useful. It was great, and I also think you know I've noticed that I'm far less precious with my material than other writers that haven't gone through sort of 
low budget boot camp. <laughs> you know, um, I have had I there are movies where I can see because it was so low budget, they would only do one or two takes. There are movies where if I watch them now, I can see, you know, the actor forget their lines in the middle of the take and just make something up. And then that's what, you know, TV Guide or the New York Times reports on is like, you wrote this line. I remember the New York Times made fun of a line that someone had made up because they couldn't remember, you know, because they only had one take and they couldn't remember it. So they just said something. And um, I, it got reported in the New York Times as like, look at this, this writing, this terrible oh, writing. And you're what like, kind of line it wasn't this? written. It wasn't written like that. Ah. Yeah. But the attitude has to be, oh, my God, the New York Times said my name. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like if that's your attitude, like, wow, I get to be like part of the industry. And maybe they're saying it's not the strongest right now, but that's OK. Like, it'll happen these sorts of attitudes have now served me very well because I think people are like, Oh, you're so steady in the room. You're so even, you're so like adaptable to notes. You're so fluid in terms of being able to, you know, move this way or that based on the notes. Well, that's, that all comes from low budget. Um, so it's all very useful. I, I, uh, I asked people this, um, anybody who's writing on a dance project, um, how you guys go about writing your dance scenes. Do you describe them emotionally and then the, the choreographer does his or her work? Do you write in certain choreographed moments? Like how, how, do, how, do, how does the room handle that? This particular room, Holly likes to give, let the artists do their thing. And so generally we will come up not with dance moves, but here's the idea behind this, this piece, you know, this is a, um, this is a dance about the two of them falling in love, or this is a dance about sexual connection. This is a dance about um, being retro and going through all the sort of old nineties, you know, dance moves um, and sort of a retrospective of this character's experiences. Um, so it's very general. Every once in a while, one of us will have an idea like, oh, you know, it's an, and um, this other element is happening at the same time. Or like, oh, we could have him, he, you know, the camera comes around and he removes his hood and then suddenly we're in the middle of the dance. So we have sort of sometimes we'll throw in like we have an image. But for the most part, it's just really describing here's what the music is supposed to sound like, because the music is original on the show as well. Um, you know, Neo writes songs, Timbaland's the producer. Um, you know, we have um, original soundtracks that are also released along with the seasons. Wow. It's incredible. There is nothing like being on set and Neo brings in a song that he wrote based on your concept. You know, one of them... I, you know, one of the songs he brought in, I was like, the idea is it's a retrospective. It's sort of like a bop, you know, like a retro bop, but that it's about him finding his muse. And when he comes in and he has this incredible song and, you know, um, Jamaica Craft is a choreographer and she's choreographed this amazing, these like dancers to dance along to his music. I started crying on set because I could not believe like the amount of artistic talent that went into creating these moments that we had just dreamed up. It, it, it's still magic. You know, I, I have to tell you, I would be crying every day, every day. I would just be a puddle. Like this is the kind of stuff that just gets me so much. Do you, okay. I have to ask, do you dance? Are you oh, a good dancer? 
I'm not a good dancer, but I trained for a very long time. Oh, oh how <laughs> I trained for 15 years in dance and in musical theater, and I am not good. I don't know what to tell you. I can't. You know what I was talking about? Intelligences. I do not have body intelligence. I have zero concept of how I look moving through space. Or you know, I can't do it. Even with sports, like I remember my parents. Uh, signed me up for tennis lessons and I was there all summer and I could not hit that ball and the instructor was just like it's like there's a hole in your net he was like or in your you know in your uh, racket he was like I don't understand and I was like I don't I don't know I can't see it uh, I feel like everything that's intelligent about me is is exactly what you said it's understanding language and understanding turning the scene like that's where all of it is and the rest of it is just hanging on for dear life. So, no, I trained for 15 years, tap ballet and jazz. I went to New York for a summer to learn, you know, and did the whole doing pirouette, you know, spin, 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 tighter, you know. <laughs> did all that for a summer, sweat flying everywhere. Fantastic summer, very fun. Um, and just realized actually at the end of that summer in New York, I was like, wow, I have to work so hard to be not good. <laughs> And other people, you know, and other people would roll out of bed, smoke a cigarette, down a can of Coke and be amazing. Uh And and I was like, I think I should focus on writing. (laughs) Sanja, this has been amazing. I love your story. I love how you have this incredible personal story in which you have grabbed other people's incredible personal stories and you have learned from them and applied them to your writing. And I just wish you all the success in the world. You are, you know, you're, you're pretty freaking fabulous. So thank you. Thank you, Pilar. I really have enjoyed working with you so much. You are just exactly the kind of person who I think writers need. You're very decisive and very um, pleasant and warm. And, but also, you know, you don't BS, which I love. Thank you. Well, (laughs) actually, I think this would be a good time for me to promote the on the page the on the page TV writing class that is coming up. Um, it's coming up the end of October and it is a four part TV class where we start by pitching your entire series and then we move into structuring your pilot. And then in uh, one of the weeks, Carol Kirshner will come on in and talk to you about the business side. So we do that in four intense two-hour online classes. Anybody can take it. We try and make it as early in the po- in the morning as possible in LA so that people on the East Coast and Europe can take it as well. So go to onthepage.tv and check it out end of October. Um, where... When will the next season of Step Up be on? Jeez. Um, well, I think we're now not going into production until January. COVID's been um, kind of a real kicker in terms of production. And then as the last thing I heard was we would be on the air in November on Stars, And I'm not sure whether that will move up or down, you know. Right. But we'll be on Stars, um, And then you can also... Um, you know, go on Instagram this February, you know, February and look up the red lipstick challenge with the very important, the red lipstick challenge and we'll be there. Awesome. Awesome. And um, is there any other social media that you want uh, people like, do you have a personal Instagram or is it mostly a red lipstick challenge? 
Uh, it's mostly for lipstick challenge. I had personal but it's just shots of my cat and my kid. Okay. You know? But I'm Delandra Mesa on there if you if you'd like. And I'm on Twitter too, where I will sometimes um use bad words and talk about politics, which is very boring. So but if you are interested, then yes, Delandra Mesa as well on Twitter. Got it. Got it. Thank you again to Delandra. You are wonderful. Thanks to all of you for listening and have a good writing week. Thank you.